0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox here. Are today's top stories. Former President Trump facing a total of 91 charges in multiple indictments. This after a fourth indictment in Georgia. What's his next move? And how does this fourth indictment compare to the third? We look at the similarities and the differences. An offer to help Trump and a call for him to drop out how his top 2024 contenders react to the latest indictment, and what the White House says about the Justice Department. Hunter Biden's top attorney is withdrawing from his case, and a former FBI agent said that the Biden transition team was tipped off about a planned interview with the son of the president-elect. The death toll continues to climb in the Hawaiian wildfires. President Biden addressing the disaster for the first time today, laying out plans for FEMA to provide assistance. And a new COVID variant dominates U.S. cases as the FDA says Ivermectin's now okay to treat COVID. Former President Trump is facing a total of 91 charges after a fourth indictment in Georgia. He and others who questioned the 2020 election in Georgia are accused of being involved in a criminal enterprise. So what's Trump's next move? NTD's Melina Wisecup is outside the Fulton County Courthouse with details. Melina, what can you tell us?
1: So there are a couple of avenues that Trump's defense team could take here. They could claim the First Amendment, saying that the president's uh, challenging the election results is within his rights because it's protected by free speech. That's one avenue they could take. They could try to move this case to federal court, saying that since Trump was in the White House during these actions that he's protected, uh, you know, and he could, they could move this to federal court. And then another avenue that they could take is try to use yesterday's incident where the court actually briefly posted the charges online before the grand jury voted they could use this as a way to dismiss the indictment saying that there's prosecutorial misconduct so these are all the avenues that could take and there are a lot more of course because of course they always use legal strategies to try to defend their uh, people as best as they can now who will be making all of these decisions on these strategies that the defense team will be bringing forth that will be a new judge by the name of Scott McGaffey he's only been uh, a judge since since six months ago. And Brian Kemp, the governor, had just appointed him. Now he's facing this very complex list of indictments, these broad charges, 41 charges, 19 people are being indicted. Trump says it's all just to interfere with his political campaign for the White House. Here's how Trump has since responded to these indictments.
2: They know they can't beat me in a fair fight at the ballot box, so they're weaponizing the legal system to try and defeat me. And you know what? This is the greatest political movement of all time. It's going to make America great again. There's never been a movement like it, and they're not going to let it happen.
1: And Trump is responding to this by holding a press conference on Monday in New Jersey, just detailing uh, his investigation into what he calls election fraud here in the state of Georgia.
0: So, what's different about the Georgia case?
1: Well, as far as appearance, there are many differences. The sheriff here in Fulton County has has said he does not plan to give Trump any special treatment, meaning that a mugshot could be taken if they don't make any prior arrangements with Secret Service to avoid this, as they did in those previous indictments. It also could be televised because of Georgia law, unless the judge tries to bar media from getting in, that is, if Trump is arraigned here in Georgia and it doesn't move to a federal court. But ultimately, we have no idea when Trump will be here in Georgia, or if he'll come at all, instead uh, make a decision, try to you know, make a court decision from uh, where you know, his home, have his attorneys come in and just do this uh, separately. So we won't know wh- if he'll come, but the, ju- the DA has given them until Friday of next week to come and surrender to these charges.
0: Thanks for that update. Melina, we'll be checking in with you again soon as you continue to track this story for us in Georgia. And Georgia prosecutors also charged 18 more people besides former President Trump. Let's take a closer look at the other individuals involved in this case. Conspiracy
3: the Fulton County District Attorney the says the 19 defendants all conspired to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Some notable defendants besides Trump are former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who worked as Trump's attorney, and Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who allegedly advanced Trump's efforts to question his election loss in Georgia. Giuliani released a statement on Tuesday morning calling the indictment the next chapter in a book of lies with the purpose of framing President Donald Trump and anyone willing to take on the ruling regime. Furthermore, prosecutors charged six lawyers, a former White House aide, three of 16 Georgia Republicans who signed a certificate stating that Trump had won the state, the former director of Black Voices for Trump, a pastor, a publicist, a bail bondsman, and the elections director in Coffee County. The 98-page indictment describes all 19 defendants as members of a criminal organization that operated in Georgia and other states.
0: And now that former President Trump has been indicted for the fourth time, how are the Georgia state charges different from the federal charges in the third indictment? NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards breaks down the differences.
4: Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis announced charges against Trump on Monday evening. The indictment alleges that rather than abide, abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, The defendants engaged in a criminal, racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Trump and others have been charged in connection with alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. The former president has been charged with 13 of the 41 counts, including violating the state's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, or RICO. RICO is most often used to tackle organized crime rings using intimidation tactics to gain money illegally. Overall, the indictment accuses all of the defendants of refusing to accept that Trump lost the 2020 presidential election to Democrat Joe Biden. And that they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. Collectively, the defendants have been characterized as a criminal enterprise that continuously carried out criminal activities for a common purpose. Some of the other charges against Trump include solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree, and conspiracy to commit filing of false documents. Indictment number three similarly charges Trump with lies and conspiracies in connection with his actions after the 2020 election. Trump is charged with conspiring to defraud the U.S., obstructing an official proceeding, and conspiring against voters' rights. The federal indictment doesn't name any of the six co-conspirators listed in it, only Trump. Some say special counsel Jack Smith's strategy is to open the door for any of the co-conspirators to turn on Trump and testify against him. Both indictments focus on efforts to pressure state legislatures and the DOJ to change electoral votes by recruiting individuals to cast false electoral votes. Critics of the charge have argued that casting a second slate of electors is in furtherance of a legitimate challenge to the electoral votes. Willis and Smith describe these actions as criminal conspiracy. The Georgia prosecutor has more flexibility under the state RICO law than Smith would have if he used the same law on the federal level. The Georgia law requires less to prove a pattern of racketeering activity. Therefore, in Georgia, prosecutors can string together separate crimes committed by different people toward some common goal or purpose. Under federal law, the prosecutor must show that all of the people are connected to a criminal enterprise. And in order to prove a conspiracy, Smith has to prove there was an agreement between two or more people to commit an illegal act. In each case, Willis and Smith must prove their charges beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. Arlene Richards, NTD News.
0: Trump's top contenders in the GOP primary reacting to the latest indictment in Georgia. That says the Biden administration tries to stay away from talking about Trump's legal battles. NTD's Iris Tau has more from the White House. Former President Trump is getting both support and criticism
5: from his 2024 White House Republican contenders. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Tuesday condemned the legal strategy used to indict Trump and calling it an attempt to criminalize politics
2: a RICO statute, which was really designed to be able to go after organized crime, uh, not necessarily to go after uh, political activity. And so uh, I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics.
5: And conservative entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy offered to help Trump in saying in a Monday tweet that he'd write an amicus brief to the court to show his support, saying prosecutors should not be deciding U.S. presidential elections. But not every Republican candidate is on Trump's side. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson on Tuesday again called for Trump to drop out of the race. That Donald
3: Trump
6: should withdraw from the race. And that case is only made stronger with every uh, indictment and case that is brought against him.
5: And we're also seeing a split of opinions in Congress. Democratic leadership responded in a statement saying no one, not even the president, is above the law. The Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wrote that justice should be blind, but Biden has weaponized government against its leading political opponent. And all this unfolds as the White House continues to try to stay away from directly commenting on Trump's legal issues. But it did say today that President Biden has spoken on several occasions about protecting the democracy. And Biden's also spoken about the need to maintain the independence of the Justice Department. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News.
0: Now turning our attention back to Trump's classified documents case in Florida. The third co-defendant, Trump's property manager, has pleaded not guilty. Mar-a-Logo property manager Carlos de Oliveira appeared in Florida federal court today for his arraignment. He pleaded not guilty to obstruction-related charges. De Oliveira also asked for a trial by jury. His attorney said the discovery process should get underway in the coming weeks. De Oliveira was added as a co-defendant in an updated indictment last month, which also specified new charges against Trump and his personal aide, Walt Nada. Prosecutors accused the three men of trying to delete security footage the Justice Department sought as part of its investigation. A trial is set for next May. A new development in the Hunter Biden probe. The president's son's lead attorney now asking to drop out of the case he's representing. Hunter Biden's criminal defense lawyer, Christopher Clark, filed a motion with a federal judge today saying that he could be called as a witness in future proceedings as the plea agreement would likely be contested. Special counsel David Weiss said in a new filing today that the plea deal is, quote, not in effect. Hunter Biden was expected to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. In the proposed agreement, the plea would resolve a separate felony gun charge, sparing him possible jail time. But the case was soon stalled after a federal judge raised concerns about the details of the deal. Hunter Biden then entered a not guilty plea. Just last month, an FBI whistleblower testified before the House Oversight Committee behind closed door regarding the Hunter Biden investigation. The transcript testimony was released yesterday. The whistleblower said that President-elect Biden's 2020 transition team was tipped off about a planned FBI interview with his son and that, as a result, the interview never took place. And only a quarter of the burn area from the deadly wildfire in Hawaii has been searched. The death toll has risen to 99 on the island of Maui and hundreds remain missing. Hawaiian Governor Josh Green told CNN the death toll could still double in the coming days. Most of the people found dead have been out in the open, in cars, or in the water in the hard-hit town of Lahaina. Authorities are expected to begin releasing the names of the dead today. As the community rebuilds, Hawaiian Electric has now restored power to about 80 percent of its customers on Maui. President Biden today said he spoke with the governor and lawmakers from Hawaii. He's laying out a support plan.
2: To date, FEMA has approved 50,000 meals, 75,000 liters liters of water, 500 beds, 10,000 blankets, and as well as other shelter supplies for survivors displaced from their homes. FEMA also authorized one-time payments of $700 per household to folks who've been displaced so they can do the immediate things of just taking care of medications and prescriptions that they so badly need.
0: The federal government will also work together with the state of Hawaii to provide temporary housing for people in need. Biden also said he ordered the Coast Guard, the Navy and the Army to assist local rescue teams. He says he's going to travel to Hawaii as soon as he can. This is the first time Biden publicly commented on the fires. He was criticized for dodging questions on the issue just a day earlier. And there's another COVID-19 variant on the rise, and unlike what we saw during the peak of the pandemic, you can now ask your doctor to prescribe ivermectin. The Food and Drug Administration says it's okay. Earlier today, I spoke with former White House Coronavirus Task Force advisor and now senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Dr. Scott Atlas, for his analysis. Dr. Atlas, thanks for joining us. The WHO says Aris should be more closely watched than other COVID variants. The name itself is belongs to a goddess of strife. How worried should we be?
6: Well, I don't think we should be uh, as worried as, uh, as some people are saying, because this is the actual expectation from a virus that is now endemic. Endemic means it will be here forever, essentially, just like four or five other coronaviruses are. This is the expected outcome pandemic where we see variants persist that are still contagious, but they are far less lethal. And there is no evidence that this variant is increasing the amount of serious or hospital requiring infections or deaths. This is exactly what we should expect. There is no reason to be afraid. Uh, and, And I'm actually a little afraid at the constant fear about COVID.
0: And for those who want to seek alternate treatment for COVID, the FDA now says that doctors can prescribe ivermectin. How do you see this apparent about-face?
6: Well, I think this is a this is a revealing a problem how the FDA, uh, instead of persuading people with facts, uh, they they, including other public health leaders, tried to persuade people by distorting. The information, or preventing a reasonable information from getting to the public, ivermectin is one such story where uh, the FDA was really flagrantly violating the public good and really ethics by tweeting out things like ivermectin. Uh, if you're a you're not a horse, you're not a cow. Stop using ivermectin. Uh, you know this was really an FDA approved drug. Ivermectin, just like hydroxychloroquine are safe and effective drugs that have been FDA approved and have been used in really billions of doses, yet the public was dissuaded from using them. This was really one of the first times, if not the first time in history, that doctors were not just uh, blackballed for using it, but prescriptions were were not being filled by pharmacists for drugs to be safe both of these drugs, like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, had a what's called mechanism of action that would indicate that they might work. There was uh, differences in clinical data on using these drugs, yet the FDA was really uh, harming the public and dissuading people from using drugs that could have worked, particularly when there was nothing else that was working. So uh, now they're backtracking. The FDA is saying, we never said you couldn't use the drug. But when you when you really inform the public in a way that makes them afraid of using a drug, they didn't just stop the use of the drug. They stopped the use of the drug in adequate clinical trials that might have shown efficacy and saved lives.
0: Dr. Scott Atlas, Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and former advisor for the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, the Illinois Supreme Court's recent ruling to uphold the state's ban on certain firearms is eliciting strong criticism from citizens and from an elected law enforcement official as well. When are Americans going to see some relief at the pump? We have some money-saving tips. And tensions escalate as the Russian Navy boards a cargo ship and Russia hits residential Ukraine with overnight strikes. Witness the aftermath after the break. A small city in Minnesota has lost its entire police department after all members of the force resigned. Goodhue is located in the southeastern part of the state and its population is just barely over a thousand. Mayor Ellen Anderson Bach said that the resignation was due largely to the city's low salaries. Goodhue's current law enforcement will remain on duty until August 24th and the city's police chief has said that right now he can't find anyone who's willing to join the force. But Anderson Buck reassured residents, saying that police coverage will not be an issue as the county's sheriff's office will patrol the city. Remember the six-year-old Virginia boy who shot his first grade teacher? Now his mother is being held accountable. 26-year-old Deja Taylor was charged with felony child neglect back in April and pleaded guilty today. As part of a plea deal, prosecutors agreed to drop a misdemeanor count of recklessly storing a firearm so as to endanger a child, which could have put her behind bars for six years. According to the state's sentencing guidelines, the jail time for the neglect charge could be six months. The shooting incident occurred back in January, and as a result, the teacher was hospitalized for two weeks and has gone through multiple surgeries. And after the Illinois Supreme Court ruled to uphold the state's ban on certain firearms, Illinois citizens are speaking out, voicing strong opposition to the law.
2: We're always disappointed when uh, the Illinois Supreme Court does not follow the Constitution as it's written, and they kind of go and uh, make decisions on how they would like the Constitution to uh, read instead of how it actually
3: does read. Sheriff Jeff Bullard from Illinois' Jefferson County is referring to the state's gun ban law. It requires owners of banned weapons to report to the Illinois State Police. Our deputies won't be enforcing it because we know it violates the Second Amendment of the uh, Constitution, and we have a duty to uh, uphold our oath. But the Illinois Supreme Court just voted to uphold the ban on Friday. The governor commended the decision in a written statement. This is a common sense gun reform law to keep mass killing machines off of our streets and out of our schools, malls, parks and places of worship. However, Sheriff Bullard disagrees, contending that banning firearms won't solve the complex problem of gun violence.
2: Uh, It's never the gun that kills people, it's the person holding it.
3: Additionally, attorney Brian Drew of Drew Law Group contends that this legislation won't curb gun violence, but violates citizens' rights. He cites Illinois Supreme Court Justice Mary Kay O'Brien, one of the three justices who dissented from the ruling.
2: The justice cited 60 percent of all uh, crimes committed in Illinois with guns or with guns that were purchased outside of the state of Illinois. Um, in addition to that, uh, AR-15s aren't used in uh, mass shootings here in Illinois. Unfortunately, um, mass shootings do happen. Uh, but many times they happen with other weapons, and it's by people who should not legally have the weapons to start with. Um, And instead of cracking down on that and actually enforcing the laws we have, they chose to go after the constitutional rights of the people of the state who are law-abiding citizens.
3: Drew, representing a coalition of 5,000 plaintiffs, is challenging the gun ban law for violating the Illinois Constitution's three-reading rule. This rule is designed to ensure public input in new laws. Drew asserts that lawmakers employed a gut and replace tactic, stripping a bill that was about insurance and inserting gun ban language instead.
2: And frankly, it's beneath government to do things like that. You shouldn't be using trickery and gamesmanship to pass laws that deal with the Constitution. And more importantly, this law.
3: DREW SAYS THE LAWSUIT IS STILL IN ITS DISCOVERY PHASE COLLECTING FACTS, BUT WILL EVENTUALLY GO TO ILLINOIS SUPREME COURT FOR A DECISION. ANGELA Moy, NTD NEWS, CHICAGO.
0: TURNING NOW TO THE ECONOMY, WHAT ARE SOME FACTORS THAT COULD PUSH GAS, gas PRICES UP EVEN FURTHER? OR COULD THEY FALL BY LABOR DAY WEEKEND? AND HOW CAN YOU SAVE ON GAS? NTD Business's DON MOSS SPEAKS WITH AN ANALYST FROM GAS BUDDY.
7: And now here with me is Patrick Dehan, head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy. So Patrick, national average uh, 3 dollars right now, Washington state at $5 a gallon. Uh, I'm wondering, is there still headroom for prices to rise or have we peaked now?
2: Well, there's still, there certainly is the po- uh, possibility that we could continue to go even higher than this. We are coming into the peak of hurricane season, which really starts in mid to late August and last for about three to four weeks. So if we see any major hurricane, especially one that enters the Gulf of Mexico, that's where half of the nation's total refining capacity is. And if a hurricane should threaten that infrastructure, we certainly could see the national average going up beyond the $4 a gallon mark, but that's a big what if. I think we have avoid a void, uh, major hurricane. We should see prices taper off, especially now that gasoline demand is starting to fall as schools reopen nationwide
7: going into the Labor Day weekend how are prices going to look like?
2: I think that gas prices will likely inch a little bit lower by Labor Day probably not much the national average maybe between 375 to 385 a gallon so not a huge departure from where we are today but it's going to be abnormal that is for gas prices that are higher closing the summer driving season this year compared to the normal year which features typically gas prices declining going into the closing innings of summer.
7: In your opinion, what has been the biggest factor influencing prices uh, here at the pump in the U.S.?
2: Well, a lot of what we've seen with gas prices suddenly rising has been uh, really two major issues that have arisen. First and foremost, Saudi Arabia cutting oil production, which it announced in June, starting in July. It has now extended those cuts into both August and September. That's been pushing up the price of oil, as is Russia now joining in on those production cuts. In addition, the heat wave that the United States saw several weeks ago caused unexpected outages at some of those large refineries down in Texas and Louisiana. That contributed to the big surge in gas prices as well.
7: Long term-wise, perhaps maybe next year, where where do you see uh, oil prices trending? Well, I think
2: there certainly could be more upward pressure going into 2024, especially if the economy continues to improve. If the Federal Reserve starts to taper off of interest rates, that could start to contribute to rising BP at the same time. That could also contribute to an American consumer who starts to consume more fossil fuels, gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. And the big wild card is will OPEC, which has projected or planned on production cuts in 2024 stick with those production cuts. It's going to be a very delicate balancing act, but I do think that 2024 may see higher oil prices than what we saw this year.
7: I see, I see. So I'm here in New York, uh, three ninety a gallon. Do you have any money-saving tips or even gas-saving tips? Well, I mean,
2: as you mentioned, gas prices are now starting to go above the year-ago levels in about 13 different states. I always would urge motorists to shop around before filling their tank for any last-minute Labor Day travel as well. Motorists that cross state lines would be well advised to make sure they're filling up on the right side of those state lines, where prices can vary by 20 to $0.50 cents a
7: gallon. All right. Thank you so much today, Patrick. Pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Turning to international news, Russia launched overnight airstrikes throughout Ukraine. Russia says it hit military targets. However, Ukraine is reporting extensive damage to residential areas. NTD's Jason Perry has the update.
3: Stop a jive!
8: On Tuesday, the Russian Defense Ministry released footage of the Russian Navy boarding a cargo ship and questioning the crew.
7: It, keep calm, keep calm, and listen to me! Okay.
8: The cargo ship bore the flag of Palau, an island nation in the Pacific. A Russian officer can be heard asking the crew why they did not respond to the Russian warship's request to stop the engine.
0: Why? Uh, they understand
8: and it appeared to be a miscommunication. Also on Tuesday, the Russian Defense Ministry said it launched overnight strikes on key military targets in Ukraine. But in Ukraine, the mayor of Lviv said those overnight strikes damaged 100 residential houses and also destroyed a kindergarten playground, injuring four people.
3: Two hours ago, this place was a children's pavilion of our kindergarten. A missile directly hit the pavilion creating a crater that is 30 feet deep and 65 feet wide.
8: And those overnight strikes killed at least three people in Ukraine's northwestern city of Lutsk. An emergency crew was seen pulling a survivor out of the rubble. The Ukrainian city of Dnipro was also hit during the overnight strikes. We were running to
9: the basement when we heard the third explosion. There was a fourth explosion while we were sitting in the basement. It was very scary. I don't have words to describe my feelings.
8: Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Tuesday visited troops on the front lines who were fighting in the counteroffensive. Ukraine's counteroffensive seems to be moving slower than expected, in large part because of complex minefields. But Ukrainians are getting creative. They say the mines retain heat from the sun, and hooking a thermal camera that detects heat to a drone has helped locate some of those mines. And if that wasn't creative enough, volunteers have turned an excavator into a demining machine, and it can even be driven with a remote control. The United States recently announced it will be sending additional mine-clearing equipment to Ukraine as well. It's part of a new $200 million assistance package for Ukraine. Jason Perry in TD News.
0: Coming up, what's Georgia's strongest argument against Trump? And could the former president's defense gain anything from the leak of the charges? We explore with a legal counsel. California has a new plan to promote freedom in education. Critics say some of the state's other proposed laws do the exact opposite and hinder parents' involvement. And a record surge in homelessness in the U.S. A study found that it's risen by at least 11 percent since last year. Some blame COVID lockdowns. Find out why when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. At least 99 people confirmed dead and the Hawaiian wildfires. President Biden addresses the disaster for the first time, outlining federal aid and saying he will visit Hawaii as soon as possible. Hunter Biden's lead defense attorney, Christopher Clark, is asking to drop out of the case. The attorney says he could be called in as a witness as the plea agreement is likely to be investigated. A grand jury in Georgia indicts former President Trump over his actions following the 2020 elections. The indictment includes 13 charges against Trump and lists 18 co-defendants. Here to speak with me about this indictment is Robert Haneke. A former Kerr County, Texas attorney, Haneke is now executive director and general counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We spoke earlier today. Robert, thank you for joining us. The indictment came out last night. What would you say is the most serious charge here? And by that, I mean, what will be the most troublesome for the defense?
10: The charges are a farce. Uh, the theory behind the indictments don't apply. Rico doesn't apply. The Rico statute we're talking about racketeering on this has two basic elements. One requires that there be an organization created for the second element, which is the furtherance of a predicate crime. And the defects in these are that, first of all, there's not a predicate crime. President Trump on a phone call talking about looking to find more votes in the 2020 Georgia election outcome, find me more votes, that's not a crime. And there's not an organization because a candidate, their lawyers and their consultants don't form an organization for the purposes of RICO. So I, I think the charges are a farce. The most troubling thing is that you have this abuse of power here that has weaponized the judicial system to go after the political enemies that are seen as Donald Trump and to use the power of government to crush him for the benefit of the Democrat Party. And having to fight back against that is really what's going to be a challenge for the the former president and the other co-conspirators.
0: Zooming in here on the RICO statute in Georgia, how strong is it in that state?
10: It's strong because it's very broad and very vague, and it carries with it significant penalties. So. The strength comes from the amorphous aspect of the statute where you've had a prosecutor here uh, basically be able to charge legal events and to cobble them all together for this to somehow allege a poorly articulated felony. So the strength comes from the lack of clarity in the statute, the lack of accountability in the prosecutor, and of course the threat of the significant criminal penalties if this could ever be substantiated in a court of law.
0: Now, only Trump was named in the D.C. case brought by Jack Smith. Why is that, do you think, when 19 people were named in the Georgia case? What's the strategy there?
10: I think it's piling on. I think the strategy in the Georgia case is to uh, drain the resources uh, that are associated with President Trump's reelection campaign. You have also gone after individuals, prominent individuals, that have been associated with former President Trump and his administration. And so it's going to cause those individuals to have to expend resources to defend themselves in court. And I think this is part of the collective effort from the Florida case, the Georgia case, the D.C. case, the New York case to weaponize the judicial system and to drain the resources of President Trump uh, to... uh, Make it uh, impossible for him to win in the 2024 election.
0: Now, does the fact that the document was leaked hours earlier give the defense the opportunity to file a mistrial later on?
10: It shows that this is a farce. I mean, the grand jury proceedings are supposed to be completely secret, and yet the uh, clerk's office for the court, or I think it was the prosecutor, published on the internet the completed charges against President Trump before they were actually voted upon. That shouldn't happen. Nobody outside the grand jury should have had any idea about what those charges were going to be until the grand jury had taken final action. It's evident that this is a kangaroo court proceeding, uh, that you have collusion, that this is not a fair or just process on this. I I think it just is another example of the sham that's going on uh, that is really uh, attacking the integrity of us being being able to have fair, full elections that are decided at the ballot box and not through these kind of abuses of power or, or weaponization of the criminal process. We shouldn't be criminalized in politics, and that's what's, this is another example of that happening.
0: The Honorable Robert Henneke, Executive Director and General Counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, thank you so much.
10: Thanks for having me.
0: California's governor plans to promote educational freedom. He promises to allow parents to participate in children's learning and create a safe campus without political censorship. But critics point to existing bills that they say would infringe on parental rights.
11: Governor Gavin Newsom and first partner Jennifer Siebel Newsom announced California's family agenda on Monday aimed at promoting educational freedom.
6: We believe in children's right to thrive. We we believe in parents' rights to decide and support their kids. We we believe uh, that kids have the right to learn and, 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 and the right to succeed.
11: It consists of four factors. Freedom to decide, freedom to thrive, freedom to learn, and freedom to succeed. It would allow parents to participate in children's learning, create a safe campus, and offer healthy meals and mental health care. It also guarantees the freedom to learn without political censorship. This comes after Moretta and Chino Valley School Districts voted to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender in school. When Newsom was asked about his stance on the school district's policies, he mostly evaded it, but hinted there could be legislation revolving around it.
6: We're working with legislative leaders. I'll be meeting with the speaker and the pro tem this evening. We'll be discussing it. I know that the LGBT caucus has uh, got some language they're working on. I haven't had the privilege of looking at it. It's a work in progress.
11: On the same day, a group of parents and organizations held a press conference at the state capitol to criticize a list of bills that they say infringes on parental rights. These bills are unconstitutional, illegal, they deprive you of fundamental rights, and they need to be stopped today. One is AB 1078, where the state would set a school curriculum, regardless if it's age-appropriate or fits the local community values. Which means if a parent or district finds a book inappropriate, the school cannot remove it because it's material that's inclusive or diverse.
12: The message was clear. Their goal was to break up the family unit and to take control of our children.
2: We know what's best for our kids. I'm not going to have a school... uh, district or a, or a government agency tell us what they should teach in the schools
11: other bills getting called out are AB5 which would require school staff to be trained on transitioning students and how to hide their gender identity from parents and AB665 which would allow children as young as 12 to consent themselves to mental health treatment it would allow the minor to leave home and go to government residential shelters without their parents or guardians consent for any reason State lawmakers are set to hear these bills this upcoming legislative session.
0: Homelessness has seen a record surge, according to The Wall Street Journal. So far in 2023, the count is 11 percent higher than last year's, and this is considered an undercount. NTD's Fake Quarter has more.
9: America is currently experiencing a record surge in homelessness. Even a conservative estimate puts the number of homeless at over 577,000 people.
6: You see it a lot more at, 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 at red lights, downtown. Um, I travel a lot. Um, I travel around the country a lot. There's not a downtown that I've been to that you don't see a a high homeless population.
9: Trent Griffin-Broff runs a transportation service that helps the homeless. He says he's definitely seen a spike in the homeless rate.
6: Even internationally, I recently just got back from Toronto. Same thing.
9: Griffin Broff believes it's mainly related to COVID-19. A study by the Wall Street Journal found that key reasons include the COVID lockdowns and all the things associated with it. The end of pandemic spending, the end of eviction moratoriums, inflation, and high housing costs. If you had a homeless
11: problem, you know, before, you've just multiplied that fourfold at a
13: minimum.
9: Nelly vasquez Rowland is the former president of a Safe Haven Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping the homeless. She says the homeless situation was already bad, largely because of mass incarceration. This locked up many people who had issues.
11: Poverty-related issues, substance abuse issues, mental health issues. And um, in an effort, you know, to get tough on crime, you know, we we created these laws that had the unintentional consequences of really incarcerating people that did not have access to treatment.
9: If you or someone you know is experiencing homelessness, there may be local emergency shelters that can help. An organization called Feeding America has 60,000 food pantries throughout the United States. They give free food to those in need. And many churches offer emergency shelter services. Faye Quarter, NTD News.
0: Coming up in the NFL, a pair of AFC East rivals have added big name players this week. Will either Dalvin Cook or Ezekiel Elliott turn them into contenders? An old military base in California is undergoing a makeover. In a few years, it will be one of the largest parks in the nation. Stay tuned for more when we come back. Now for your sports we're joined by ntd's dave martin dave a couple of prominent running backs have found new teams can you tell us about it
14: yeah listen uh, ezekiel elliott he's going to the patriots he's a three-time pro bowl selection formerly of the dallas cowboys and of course dalvin cook just signed with the new york jets he's made the last four pro bowls now, listen, both these running backs are 28 years old, which is actually not very young in today's NFL. And in a sign of the times for the marketplace for running backs, both had to sign one-year deals. Uh, I, think, I think the uh, Dalvin Cook signing is a little bit more significant just because the Jets, uh, their number one running back last year, Brees Hall, is recovering from a torn ACL, and that uh, clearly takes some time to recover.
0: Well, what do you think this does for the Jets in terms of their standing in the AFC?
14: You know, I don't know that it bridges the gap. Certainly getting Aaron Rodgers brings them much closer to the top of the AFC, you know, with uh, the Chiefs, the Bengals, and the Bills, presumably. I think the offensive line is their key. Uh, They've got some question marks. You know, left tackle, you've got Dwayne Brown, who's been great, but he's 38 years old. You never know what you can expect from a player that age. Right tackle is an even bigger question mark. They'd like Mekhi Becton, I'm sure, to grab that right tackle spot. He's a very talented player, but he's missed almost all of the last two years. He's only played one game the last two years because of injuries. I think he's the key to their their offensive line and really to their season.
0: And moving on to college football, defending champion Georgia was number one in the preseason poll. How much stock do you put into that?
14: Very little. I mean, no games have been played yet. And Georgia, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're necessarily wrong about Georgia, but no team has won three titles in a row in almost a century. I think the big thing here, though, is seeing Alabama down at number four. And this is a program that's won six of the last 14 national titles. They haven't won it each of the last two years, which for them is almost a drought. This, I think this is really going to motivate Nick Saban. I think he's going to relish the role of the underdog, if you can even call him them. I think both now both them and Georgia are going to have to replace their starting quarterbacks but I see Alabama getting back to the winner's circle and bringing home the title this year.
0: Now were there any surprises in the poll?
14: You know Clemson seeing them at number nine was a little bit surprising only because they've been very good under Dabo Sweeney no matter really who they have playing I mean they've won two national titles under them Oklahoma down at number 20 it's always weird to see them that far down granted they're coming off a losing season and a relatively new head coach I think there's I think this season, though, I think if you look at the top of the polls, 10 of the top 12 teams are either in the Big Ten or the SEC or will be next year. You know, with this conference realignment, the rich got richer. I think one of the major things that people are going to be talking about this year, too, is kind of the demise of the Pac-12. I think there's going to be a lot of sentiment over that. And I think that's going to be a major storyline going forward.
0: Now shifting gears to baseball, it appears that Shohei Ohtani will miss his next pitching start. Is he injured?
14: You know they're calling it arm fatigue. So I guess he's just tired. Uh, that that seems to be the uh, the presumed um, rumor about this. Uh, but they still have him in the lineup as a hitter, and he's a very good hitter. I mean, he's got 41 home runs, which leads all of baseball. But overall, the Angels. This is. They're having some problems. You know, Mike Trout is still out with an injury. He's been out for six weeks. He's a three-time MVP. Uh, Meanwhile, they've been losing ground. They're now seven games out of a playoff spot with him and um, Otani not injured. Things are really, really looking bleak for them to get back into the race.
0: Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steph. And next, an old military base is getting a makeover in Southern California making history and turning into one of the nation's largest municipal parks.
12: NTD's Christina Corona showcases its impressive scale. Irvine's newest park is said to become one of the largest in the United States, boasting expansive grounds and diverse recreational offerings. The great park has a rich history as the former Marine Corps Air Station El Toro and its 1300 acres embrace recreation, competitive sports, cultural activities and the natural
13: environment. When the base was closing in 1999, um, what happened was there was a lot of discussions about what that would transform into and by 2002 um, on the March ballot was Measure W. And that really meant that we were gonna decide whether it was going to be an airport or a park. And the county overwhelmingly voted to have it become a park. And that was the beginning of what is now the Great Park.
12: After 20 years of effort, Khan said with their increased funding, they now have the opportunity to build the original framework plan with several new amenities
13: right now the park consists of the sports complex which has the soccer stadium the softball stadium um, the ice skating rinks but what we're really excited about is what's coming forward and that's the botanical garden the veterans memorial park uh, the lakes the meadow the forest and
12: just how long will it take until the new park is completed
13: so it's going to be in phases so the framework plan is looking at from now till about eight years out And within those eight years, um, you know, right now we're doing demolition and grading.
12: And are there any plans for preserving the historical significance of the old military base?
13: Oh, absolutely, as we're demolishing, um, involved in demolition right now, we're saving aspects of the old El Toro base. And that's gonna be incorporated throughout the park because we wanna make sure that as people come in and enjoy the amenity and see what's available for the future, we wanna remember our past and our history as well.
12: Irvine's Great Park will be one of the largest municipal parks in the country. From the Botanical Garden to the Water Park to a concert venue, there will be something for everyone to enjoy. The Irvine Great Park is poised to become one of the world's largest, offering an impressive expanse of recreational and natural space for the community and Southern California to enjoy. Christina Corona, NTD News, Irvine.
0: And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.